never-ending, ceaseless scandals of the Francis Pontificate and the Tucho Fernandez doctrinal chairship. He's the doctrinal number two in the church, and he causes never-ending scandals, as does his boss. Good Catholics are wondering, what do we do now? Where do we go, Lord? And the answer is simply nowhere. Stay where you're at. Stay on the bark. Don't fly off either side of the ship. The left side, of course, most of you aren't in danger of that. Parish orphans and retrogrades. And the right side, you hear me say this all the time, but lest it become a senseless or justificationless mantra, you need to understand what the reasons animating me saying that are. The reasons for not leaving the faith are plenary, they're inarguable, and they are uh, easily itemizable in a simple list. And I have five for you today. Each of them speaks to a drive that Catholics have to remain Christian yet leave the faith. And I'm going to be addressing those in particular. They might be specially applicable to those who want to remain in the sacramental practice of Christianity. And there's only one place that such people are tempted to go. That place is Eastern Orthodoxy. But it applies with special force to Protestantism as well. I'm going to give you that list of five reasons that I have friends in the Orthodox Church. I have lots. I respect the Orthodox Church, but it's got more problems than us and more fundamental problems than us. Even though they don't have the embarrassment of the worst president and vice president, worst pope and and doctrinal head in the world at the time. Only we have that. We have our problems. Not everyone else does. Everyone else has everyone else's problems. And our problems are particularly embarrassing. Francis and Tucho Fernandez feel like maybe the most underhanded, subversive men in the world, and they might be. Yeah, Eastern Orthodox don't have that issue, and it's fresh in that sense. Here are five reasons that you should not leave the church for Eastern Orthodoxy. Coming up in one second. First, I would remind you at the beginning of this new year to support this channel on Locals and Subscribestar. You can do so by going to either Locals or Subscribestar as attached to this video. It's very easy to do. Become a monthly supporter and you get excellent access to content like all the book clubs I do. We're reading through the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy right now and uh, special access to content early and special access to me, ways to reach me that are not available to the general public. Locals and Subscribestar today. Do the best you can by yourself and your family by getting out of a blue state and getting to a red state. Go to realestateforlife.org. I suggest the blood red swath of states from Texas to Florida. That's where I went as soon as I got canceled. I took a trip here to Mississippi, Alabama area, and I knew this is where I wanted to be in the case that I ever got canceled. Realestateforlife.org. Okay. Let's do it. Also, like, subscribe, click the notification bell. We're trying to get to 50,000 subscribers. Five reasons that you should not seriously consider leaving the bark of Peter for 
Eastern Orthodoxy or Protestantism. Eastern Orthodoxy is a much more serious candidate and option than Protestantism, but these apply with force to both. Reason number one. This is the most important one methodologically. There's a first principle of executive power that applies to all organizations, human and divine, at all times, especially to the church. Even the church also has this divine capacity. It's also a human mate. Hierarchy is necessary, but it functions at the behest of the principle of parsimony. So, all organizations need, particularly in cases of crisis, a special head, an executive power, a monarch, a king, a principal, a president, a magistrate who can dispense justice lightning fast. I say it functions under the principle of parsimony, meaning you don't advert to this monarchical executive authority any more often than necessary because throughout history, so often the crises that organizations have undergone, governmental and private sector, have been crises created by having a monarchy. You get around this problem by um, establishing a constitutional kind of hierarchy the way the Roman Catholic Church actually is established constitutionally. Our magisterium is constitutional of sorts. But functioning under the principle of parsimony, under Pastor Eternus in Vatican I, this was established in a more explicit way. The Vatican I's, you know, one and a half of its official documents, Pastor Eternus, where it says, you always follow the Pope, but you only follow him as if he's speaking perfectly if he makes an ex cathedra statement. Clear. And that is consistent with how the church had always operated. A hundred or so years later, you get Vatican II with famous paragraph Lumen Gentium 25, which sounds like it's expanding on that power. Sound like anything the Pope says should be treated by the faithful as if it is an ex cathedra statement, this submission of intellect and will. And this is a bit problematic and needs some gloss. It sincerely needs some gloss. That doesn't mean that there will be a contradiction of Vatican II later. It just means Vatican I and Vatican II have to harmonize and the hierarchical necessity for an executive monarchical power is not lessened. It does not diminish according to whether or not you follow Vatican I or Vatican II. We just need clarity. And there will be a Vatican III kind of clarity on, yeah, we're really a minimalist papal people. So Peter is, you know, the vicar of Christ. He is the first C, and he has a universal jurisdiction. We're going to talk about that some today, which is necessary. When you look at the Eastern Orthodox 14 autocephalous churches, they couldn't even, they haven't been able to have a meeting with all 14 churches because, I'm going to talk about this in reason number two, as Soloviev, the Russian mystic, once wrote to Dostoevsky, who was Eastern Orthodox, 
In order to call all the brothers to the table, one requires Papa and Soloviev converted from being Russian Orthodox to Catholic. And Dostoevsky hated it, but he could not answer Soloviev's charge that without monarchical or at least executive authority, one cannot take swift action or even the kind of action of calling all the brothers to the table. The 14 autocephalous brothers are going to quarrel. History in the church, the Roman Catholic Church, shows a kind of Vatican I authority of the Pope. It's there from the very beginning of time. And I'm going to show that in item number four. But the point is, all organizations operate on a first principle of authority. A hierarchical power that is necessarily located in one head, that head should operate according to the principle of parsimony should be one guy in order to take swift action, but it shouldn't be, he shouldn't be flexing power all the time. Well, guess what, people? The Roman Catholic Church is a papally minimalistic church and has always been that until, ironically, Francis, number 266, who flexes power more often than anyone while saying that he's going to be more democratic than any one pope in our history. Anything he says, he does the opposite of. And I do remind you that the other four of these reasons, I'm going to get to number two right now, are all in spite of, reasons to stay Catholic in spite of Pope Francis and doctrinal chief Tucho Fernandez. Because they're reasonably making people wish they weren't Catholic. I'm saying don't act on that wish. They're very, very embarrassing. Don't deny this. Don't come up with lies or cope. It's true. I'm saying to stay in spite of them. So papal minimalism is reason number one as a desideratum, a reason to be here because it's good. Because all organizations need a head, a minimalistic monarchical or executive head. And that's precisely what we have in two millennia of papal history. In issue number four, in item number four, I'm going to show you exactly how specifically early this began. Okay, item number two, reasons to stay Catholic in spite of Francis and Tucho. That a priori need, which we call minimalistic in item number one, has been shown through the history, specifically of Eastern Orthodoxy, to be wanting, to be lacking, and it incurs to its detriment that it is lacking. They cannot take basic procedural steps like having an ecumenical gathering with all 14 autocephalous churches. Just ask the Ukrainian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox. They can't get everyone together. Why? Because having a head is what is necessary to call the brothers to the table. Even as a grown adult, one who's not naturally submissive to authority, I'm talking on my own behalf now, if my father were to call my, my brothers and I, I'm from a family of all brothers, and we all are very individualistic and are not likely to submit to any man, well, my father, if he took strong action, he would be the one I'd be the most likely to submit to. 
He can call the brothers to the table. He has the authority. My older brother doesn't have the authority to do it. And it would annoy me if he tried to. My younger brother doesn't have the authority to do it. And it would annoy me if he tried to. Same thing goes. Vice versa. Me with them. I'd be annoying if I tried to call them. Soloviev says this to Nietzsche, uh, sorry, to Dostoevsky in a, a letter that's now famous. Look, I'm leaving. I'm going to Catholicism. Even though the, the papacy creates some problems and has throughout all the Middle Ages with some of the popes, you need a pope. A flawed pope is better than no pope. Feels like that's not true in the case of Francis. Maybe it was true with the Borgias or the Medici popes, but Francis feels like it's almost the rule-proving exception, but he's not. He's unique in several ways. But flawed pope is still better than no pope at all. Francis is the most flawed pope, and you've never heard me cope. You have never once heard me on this channel, all the thousands of hours I've talked about it, cope. He's the worst pope in history. He might be the most subversive man on the planet right now. He might be the point man for WEF. I, I think the, all these things are plenty realistic. And I'm still saying, because of the a priori need that organizations need for a man, and some of our popes are very, very, very bad men, that's beyond doubt. We know, ipso facto, that having a, a most flawed pope has already been shown to be uh, non-problematic a priori for the prospect of Catholicism. And specifically for people that are like, well, I want to go to a, a real practice of Christianity that's sacramental, that has bishops that are apostolic, that has um, a full 2,000-year lineage. We're not talking Protestantism. They don't have the sacraments or bishops who are apostolic or really the practice of Christianity at all because they don't have the Eucharist. They just believe in Jesus. Good for them. Well, a lot of people are naturally drawn to orthodoxy. Guess what? They can't even take a procedure as exigent as gathering all of the Eastern Orthodox bishops in the world together because they're fighting brothers. So reason number one was papal minimalism. Reason number two is because of the a priori kind of first principle need all organizations have for executive authority. And it needs to be located in one visible sign of unity on earth or in the organization, at least, for drawing out the analogy. Now, the third reason that I would speak specifically to Catholics who are attracted to orthodoxy, that you ought not flee from Francis to orthodoxy, is that the Sankt Gallen Mafia, so specific, who gave us Francis, so specifically crafted their Francis pontificate. First, it was going to be Martini as Francis I. Then it became Bergoglio as Francis I once Martini got sick. Did a show on that the other day. Go see that if you didn't watch it. So specifically, they crafted it off of Eastern Orthodoxy. Literally. You can't say, oh, things are really bad in the church that we need to go become Orthodox. But we're going to go... <laughs> But, but when what we identify as the bad properties of Francis's new Catholic Church, they're all specifically Orthodox. And here's what I mean. I don't, I don't mean that 
If we look at the Saint-Gallen Mafia agenda for the Francis Pontificate outlined by Cardinal Walter Casper in 2014, I don't mean that it's like orthodoxy. I mean, Cardinal Casper started writing white papers on communion for civilly remarried adulterers in 20, uh, sorry, in 1993. He was literally reading and quoting from Eastern Orthodox moral theology, which has the internal forum, which enables communion for the divorced and civilly remarried. How to deal with divorced and remarried Catholics was one of the most divisive issues at the 2014-2015 October Synods. I'm reading from a Catholic article now. Cardinal Walter Casper uh, had recommended following the practice of the Orthodox churches, which recognize only one valid sacramental marriage, a trick, a name trick, but allow for the divorce to be civilly remarried and readmitted to communion after a penitential process. Divorce and remarried communion is orthodox. They're allowed to get married in many of the churches up to three times. Also, newly introduced this week, or newly reintroduced, is the Sankt Gallen Mafia's secondary goal, listed by Walter Brand Mueller, in a kind of tell-all as to what we could expect in the Francis Pontificate in as far back as 10 years ago, 2014, was very pro-body. This also is modeled for sacramental Christians, Catholics and Orthodox, by the Orthodox, who have married priests. Okay? These are two of the big issues that face us. What we're also expecting coming down the pike from Tucho and Francis any day now, any month now, is a reconsideration of Humanae Vitae so that you can apply the internal forum, term that comes from Eastern Orthodoxy, to contraception as well, to overturn Humanae Vitae. That's also an Eastern Orthodox issue. Now, the Orthodox are manly. They are patriarchal. They don't like the concept of women deacons. Can't pin that on them. Not doing that. Catholicism got uniquely infiltrated by Feminism, they're more feminist than the Catholic Church. That's one you got you to put on the win column for Orthodox over us. And I'm trying to change that. That's a big part of our ministry here. So can't pin that on them, but commune for divorced and civilly remarried, very pro-body, non-celibate priests, and uh, what was the third thing? Oh, an allowable artificial contraception. Those are all modeled for Catholic robo-liberals turbo-radicals by Eastern Orthodox. Those are the first three things Francis has chosen to address, it looks like, in addition to women deacons. And three of the four of them come directly from Eastern Orthodoxy. So you can't say, well, we're sick of this peace. We're going to Eastern Orthodoxy. That's the source of the error, brother. No way. Issue number four. Item number four. This is a particularly good one. If you look at, oh, and by the way, look at Isaiah 33, chapter, uh, verse 22. This shows that there are three powers. There's executive, legislative, and judicial. Comes from Isaiah 33, verse 22. Montesquieu, who was kind of the model for those who wrote the American Constitution, he was on to something. God's the, the judge the executive, and the lawgiver. 
That's the three branches of government. That's very interesting. And that I was going to list that off for you in items one and two. Sancta Gaul and Mafia Goals. Um, it was item number three. Um, don't go to orthodoxy because Catholic got the liberalism that he's pushing from the Sancta Golan Mafia who got it from the Orthodox themselves. You will sound stupid if you run to the Orthodox because you're worried about communion for the divorce and civilly remarried, contraception, and married priests. That's silly. Now, if you look at number four, Daniel chapter 7, verse 27. This is some amazing stuff. Daniel chapter 7 Verse 27, I'm going to read a couple of verses before it. It makes clear that the fourth kingdom will be Rome, which will be pagan for a while. I got this idea from my my friend Andrew, who's a woodworker and a a great thinker. The fourth kingdom, after Greece, uh, in, in no certain order, Greece, Babylon, Persia, will be Rome, and Rome will be the one that lasts and will be striven for between pagans and Christians, the Christians will prevail and they will rule from Rome. I don't hear people talking about this. Until the Ancient of Days came, starting in in verse 22, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast, after the the three kingdoms of Persia, Greece, uh, Babylon, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon earth, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms. We're talking about Rome now. All scholars agree this is Rome. And shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. Think of what happened to the Roman Empire. Ended only in the 19th century. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. And another shall rise after them and he shall be diverse from the first and he shall subdue three kings. Verse 25, and he shall speak great words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. Verse 26, but the judgment shall sit and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, Rome whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Rome. Hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me, and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. I don't know how the Orthodox get around this. Rome is the fourth kingdom, not Constantinople. And it was striven for between the Christians and the pagans, And the Christians will be the ones to outlast everyone from Rome. That is Daniel chapter 7, verses 23 through 27. Okay, and the fifth reason, fifth and final reason, is that our fourth pope, our fourth pope was the one, the first one to really satisfyingly describe Uh, exercise, what could only be described as an executive power. A universal jurisdiction where unlike what the Eastern Orthodox say, 
he's only a first among equals. No, he actually can exercise a jurisdiction that is universal over all the other bishops of the world. Our first pope did it. Our first pope is the one who did it. There are a few examples of this, but beginning with the fourth pope in a famous letter of Clement, where he settles the dispute in Corinth and warns of consequences to the detriment of grace if he is disobeyed. I'm now citing from another one of my friends, Andrew. He's the first one, the fourth pope in the first century. His pontificate began in like 88. Some are more compelling examples than others. And yet there's a couple examples of this from the second and third centuries. Another prominent example of the universal jurisdiction is Pope Victor I, who ordered bishops assemble in local synods to settle the debate on when Easter is to be celebrated. It's disciplinary, but it's a universal jurisdiction all the same. One group, the Corto Decimens, refused to follow the Pope's date, and he threatened excommunication. It's in 180, uh, I think it's in the early 190s AD. Essentially, this showed he, the Pope, believed he could control the liturgy and excommunicate groups from within the universal church. A third example is Pope Stephen in the third century, who settled the issue on rebaptism and demands people follow his view, though some like Cyprian of Carthage, who had a high view of papacy, were scandalized and didn't follow his decree. These are my, my friend's words here. So, there's also the issue of the Pope being a, 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 there's a constant mention throughout even the first millennium of the Pope being a court of appeals. Remember, I, I, I read you Isaiah 33, 22, or I, I summarized it for you. Three branches are necessary. They're necessary in God. Go read that verse 22 in Isaiah 33. He's the king. He's the judge. He's the lawgiver. That corresponds to being a kind of monarch or president, a judge and a legislator. And he's also cited all the time as a court of appeals when bishops dispute something inter or intradiocesanly. So those are five reasons, five very, very real reasons that you can cite. Why? No, I'm, I'm not going to go be, I'm certainly not going to be Protestant. Okay. I know too much history to do that. But our historical sacramental 2,000-year-old Christian friends, the Eastern Orthodox, who make a more compelling case, may be rebuffed with each of those five points. Minimalism, the a priori need for executive power, the St. Gallen Mafia, who gave us odious Francis pontificate, modeled it after Eastern Orthodoxy and moral theology, particularly on sex issues. Number four, Clement and other pre-Constantinian pre-second millennium exercises of universal jurisdiction. And, of course, that, that excellent passage from Daniel, chapter 7, verses 27. Well, yeah, and you know that if you choose wrongly with enough subjective reason not to, hell, there's hell to pay for it. Feels like hell to pay to have this embarrassing conversation with your Orthodox or Protestant family and friends over Thanksgiving or Christmas meals. We just came away from the holidays. Francis is mortifying. He's beyond embarrassing. He's indefensible. All you have to say is, look, papal minimalism and all the other four reasons. 
End of story. Stay Catholic. Deus Volt. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit.